Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, our pastor, David Lunsford, is continuing a sermon series in the Gospel of John. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the Gospel of John. topic in John chapter 4 today is worship. Worship. It's good to be back with you. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember the old Johnny Carson comedy routine about the freeways, and he would point and say, take this freeway to that freeway to the other freeway, and all. And I used to think, what a, what a silly thing. No, it's actually the way people live. And all of those red lines are like Interstate 5 uh, you know, several lanes wide in each direction, and then, of course, you have all kinds of other roads. But uh, So I finished the wedding cake. Well, then I had to come back over to this little park where we had the wedding for the rehearsal, and Stephanie had said, you need to go south on 605. Okay, I said, well, great, then you got to go here and there. And I'd swear to God I was going right exactly like she told me. And I'm not exactly sure where I ended up, but I think it was over here. Because <laughs> it, it got to, is it kind of industrial over there, Chuck? Yeah, it got to looking more and more industrial and less like I'd find a city park. And, you know, at a point I just said, I've got to get off and turn around at the very least. And I had a map, and thankfully I was able to find my way without asking for directions. <laughs> that would have been the worst humiliation. But... I just thought I was cruising down the freeway. I just knew where I was going, but I was dead wrong. I was going the opposite way of what I was supposed to go, but I was going confidently. <laughs> the woman at the well, the, the character, the, the subject, not quite the subject of John 4, but the, one of the, the key subjects with Jesus in John 4, thought she was going in the exact right way in terms of worship, and turns out she was 180 degrees wrong. And Jesus points that out to her. And I want you to understand that we're, we're, we're taking a section of this passage. Next week, we're going to relate all of these sections together and, and help you see the flow of it all. But for this week, this is such an important section on worship that we're just going to pull it out and look at just what God teaches us about worship. And part of it we will learn from looking at the worship of the Samaritan woman and her Samaritan fellows, uh, her companions, and the, the mistakes that they made. Follow as I read from John chapter 4, and verse uh, 19. And the woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Verse 21, And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. We need to look, first of all, at the Samaritan worship mistakes, if you will. And I know this text doesn't tell us a lot about the system of worship of the Samaritan people, but it does give us an important clue that this woman was following what we might call the common Samaritan religion of the day. When she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, I've tried to summarize their worship mistakes into two principles that perhaps will help us today. And the first is this, that worship can be defined by mankind, and you could even add to it, in any way that mankind pleases. When she says our fathers worshiped in this mountain and then you Jews say in Jerusalem, she's making reference to uh, her ancestors uh, in the, the Samaritan, we would call it today an ethnic group. This woman was a descendant of a group of folks 
who were left in the land of Israel when many of the people of Israel were taken away captive to Assyria. They eventually intermarried with non-Jewish folks who were moved into the land of Israel by the king of Assyria. So we might just say broadly, the Jewish folks, the people of God, married Assyrians. And this woman is a descendant of that mix of people. Now in our day and age, we say, what's the problem? They're just from different countries. Well, the problem is, is that God told his people, the Jews, to stay within the Jewish nation in their marriages because he knew that uh, in that day, everybody had their own God, and if you married an Assyrian woman, you would be drawn to worship the Assyrian God. The people of Israel were forever breaking this commandment of God and, and marrying folks from outside, and the Jewish folks were always carried off into false worship. They never brought people into the true worship of God. So this woman was a descendant of, of Jewish Assyrian folks. Subsequently, subsequent to these folks coming together in the land of Israel and starting to intermarry, the true worship of God was mixed together with a sort of religious toss salad with the beliefs and practices of the Assyrian people. And by the time of this woman, in John 4, the Samaritan religion was so well-defined that they argued with the Jews about where worship should take place. It was a common argument. Let's look back and see what God says about the Samaritan religion. They feared the Lord. These are the Jewish people who married with the Assyrians. They feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. He said they worship their own gods, they have their own form of worship, they don't follow the commands of God as he clearly instructed them. The Samaritan mistake was believing that they could worship God as they pleased. I'm a free white American, I can do what I want. If I want to worship God this way, if I want to worship God that way, it's none of your business. Well, on a civil basis, I would agree with you. You're free to do that. But on a theological basis, you are not free to worship God in just any way you please. The Samaritan mistake was believing they could worship God as they pleased. From one author, he said, the Samaritan religion was a man-made religion. And Jesus would not allow the Samaritan woman to believe that any religion of human origin, a religion based on human ideas, is acceptable to Jehovah God. Human religion was not acceptable then, and it's not acceptable today. It's important for you to understand, for instance, that we don't have some Baptist book of worship that we follow this is the book of worship it's god's book not a baptist book not a catholic book not a you name it book it's god's book of worship i don't get to choose how i worship god now i will agree with you that god has left us a little bit of flexibility in some of the form for instance we're going to talk about singing a little bit later on is there more than one kind of music that pleases God? I think there is. But there's not more than one kind of content in the music that pleases God. I can't choose what I'm going to say to God. I have to say to God what God wants me to say. We do not study the writing of our Baptist ancestors nor any other human being any other man or woman, to see how we ought to worship. Our ideas about worship only matter in as much as those ideas follow God's truth. The Samaritan mistake was believing they could worship God the way they wanted to, that it could be humanly defined. The second mistake of the Samaritans was believing that worship was a physical ritual. Look with me again at verse 20. What is she talking to Jesus about? Is she talking to Jesus about theology, about doctrine, about the person of God? Is she talking to Jesus about what it means to be a, a, a worshiping person? No, she's talking about the, the church building. 
Our fathers worship on this mountain. Now, uh, we don't have time to look at all the geography and whatnot, but basically, Jacob's well, the place where Jesus is having this interchange with her, was on a hillside and in a range of hills, if you will, and up on the mountain would be a place called Mount Gerizim, was a place that they considered to be uh, uh, an appropriate place to worship God. It was a battle in the worship wars of Jesus' day. Which place is the right place? The Samaritans had some real good reasons for believing in their site for worship, including the high probability that Abraham used Mount Gerizim in the offering of Isaac, and that this was the site where worship was initially given when the children of Israel came into the land of Israel from Egypt. Some good reasons to worship there. Now you need to understand something. God never said you must worship in Jerusalem. But what he did say was, this is the tabernacle, first of all, and then secondly, this is the temple. That is the place where you will worship. So there was a specific place identified, but not a city. The Samaritan folks got all worked up over identifying worship as a physical ritual. We might even call it a religious ritual which causes God to be happy with a person. I'm gonna earn God's favor by performing this physical ritual in front of him. We're gonna perform a physical ritual today. It's one of only two physical rituals that God gave us or religious activities that God gave us to do um, in sort of the traditional sense of a religious activity. It's eating the bread and drinking the juice in remembrance of Christ our Savior. It is a physical act which he has commanded us to do. The other one is baptism. We don't use the word ritual usually when we talk about those things because we want people to understand what we mean about them. And I think by the end of today's sermon, hopefully you will. Some people confuse the physical ritual with the reality of worship, and it's not so. Even God's people in the Old Testament came to just think, just go through the motions. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Now this is, this is not going in a good direction, is it? This is God laying it on his people. Now what's the sin gonna be that he identifies? Watch this. Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, strangers devour your land and your present. It's desolate and overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah, which were totally annihilated. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's, he's using that now as a name for Israel. You rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of your God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? All of that condemnation is about how they worshiped. And remember, what they were doing in offering these sacrifices was prescribed by God. It was a ritual he wanted them to perform. He wanted them to bring the animal and, and, and kill the animal and sprinkle the blood and burn the fat and give some part of it to the priest and, and put, their head to, to show the taking, put their hands on the head to show the taking away of the sin. All of these things were prescribed by God, and yet he says, what is the purpose of the multitude of your sacrifices? says, why all this religious activity, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the bull of blood, the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. God is saying, I'm fed up with your worship. When you come to appear before me, 
Who has required this from your hand? In other words, who's making you come to worship to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. These were his people doing the rituals he had prescribed, and he calls them futile. Without purpose, empty. Don't, do not bring any more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbath, th- those are all references to the different aspects of worship he commanded them. The new moons, the Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. That's pretty tough words. Why is it? Because these people were going through the physical ritual with no heart for God. Listen to how it became. The same thing was going on in the day of Jesus. Listen to what he says about the Pharisees. These people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, I don't believe you people are that bad. I'm not preaching today because I think you're under the judgment of God. But could I, just, could I just draw a real simple application here? When you come in and start singing that first song and your mind is a million miles away, do you think that blesses God? You know how I know your mind's a million miles away? Because you're going, ho, 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 ho. Now I'm here to tell you, I have to discipline myself to get my mind going with my mouth. I'm not a, you're not alone in this. Last week, at this hour, I was sitting in my son's church, and I've got to keep my mind disciplined on the singing and on the listening to the preaching, not on the, the pastor stuff. Hey, hey, Sue, did you see that? What do you think of that? Look at that, how that's, you know. You know what? <laughs> that is not what I'm supposed to be there for. In fact, that's what I prayed when, I, when we started. I said, God, help me just to forget all that stuff and think about me and you. It's a discipline of worship. And these people were failing. They were going through the motions. They were, you know, especially here when I say they honor me with my mouth but their heart's far from me. I can't help but think of singing and, 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 or of reading scripture or things like that that we do with our mouth and, and uh they're honoring me with, my, with their mouth. You know, you know, it's a great day that the Lord has made, but where's their heart? What I want to help you understand today is how to bring your heart and your head together a little bit more. It's not just a physical ritual. For sure, I, I hope you have always understood that receiving communion, eating the bread and drinking the juice is not just a physical ritual that you do these things and and you think, oh, God's happy with me. I just drank this and ate this. No, no, because Jesus said, why should you do this? To what? Remember me. He He said, you don't do this so God will go, oh, good job. You worship God. So he says, good job. This last week, and I know some of you are from Catholic background, some of you may still be in a Catholic church, and please understand the whole thing of what I'm saying, but this last week was the Mardi Gras, New Orleans is destroyed, but they still have the big party, and of course, if you don't understand, Fat Tuesday, which is the high point of Mardi Gras, is all about letting go, and from a Christian perspective, we would call it all about uh, drunken debauchery. And then you know what they do on Wednesday? They go to church and they get the black smudge of Ash Wednesday, the cross, put on their forehead. And I know not every single Catholic believes this, but a whole bunch of them believe that they can party like the devil on Tuesday night and put that mark on their forehead and be in church and it's all taken care of. And I'm here to tell you folks, that is worshiping with the body, not with the spirit. It is going through the motions, not having a genuine. Would a person with a genuine heart from God go out and live immorally on the day before worship? 
That just doesn't make sense. It makes sense if you, if you somehow think that religion is going through the motions. There's a list of things for me to do. I must do this, and I must do this, and I must do this. And if I do all these things, everything will be okay. I can live the way that I please as long as I do the religious rituals. I know that our church service follows kind of a certain pattern every week, and I'm going to tell you why that is in a minute. But I hope it's not just a ritual that you come and do it and go away thinking you've You've blessed God because you showed up. Worship is not just a physical ritual. Now, what are Jesus' positive instructions here? Look at verse 21, please, of John chapter 4. Jesus said to the woman, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. The first principle that I would give to you is this. Worship must not be identified by its rituals or by its physical rituals. While God always wanted more than physical ritual from his believers in the Old Testament era, there were rituals that they were supposed to do, but in the New Testament era, all of that is pushed aside. And there's a new era of worship God designed the pre-Christian system of worship to prepare his people to believe in and worship Christ. The concept of a building as a sanctuary or a holy place, of requiring a priest to offer worship for you, and all the other facets of the tabernacle and temple worship system were to bring people to Christ. But the error those people had was confusing form with content, of assuming that just because they showed up at the temple, their worship happened. And Jesus said, look, not only is that system going away, but here I'm, I'm telling you now, it's all about the content. It's not about the time, it's not about the place, it's about the content. I heard some folks uh, years ago say, when you close the doors of the church on Sunday night, that is when you don't have a service, the devil comes into the building. Is worship just about a time and a place? Is it just a ritual that we go through? Jesus says, look, these rituals aren't gonna matter anymore. It's gonna be about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Worship must be based in God's truth. Verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. They had a couple of problems in their worship, the Samaritans, and one of them was this. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch, the five books. They only accepted the books of the law as the word of God. They did not accept the rest of the Old Testament. And so they did not have all of God's truth that should have affected their worship. They didn't have David saying some words that we'll see in a minute when David clearly says, my heart must be in the worship, not just my body. They did not worship according to God's truth. And then, of course, they brought all of this other stuff in from Assyria. They were not worshiping according to God's truth. What is the truth that he gives right in this passage? The first one is this, God is spirit. If you have the King James translation, it says God is a spirit, as though there might be more than one spirit. That is an incorrect translation. There is no such thing as an indefinite article in the Greek language. God is not trying to tell us that he is, he is a person or a spirit in that sense. He's trying to say that what he is made up of, his essence, is spirit. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Listen to this from the book of Acts. However, the Most High, that's another name for God, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, when Acts was written, the time of the temple in Jerusalem was over and past, as Jesus just predicted. He said, the time is coming when Jerusalem isn't going to matter as the location of worship. The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? Can you imagine building a house for somebody big enough to have heaven for the throne and earth for the footstool? That's, he's saying, he, what, he, what he's telling them there in, in that Old Testament truth is he's saying, hey folks, get your, get your mind around how big I am. 
And in fact, in the Old Testament, God wasn't confined to the temple. He made himself known there, but he's always been this big. God is a spirit. God is a spirit. He is not a physical being. He is a spiritual being. And so the question would be this. Why would a spirit being delight in something which is only physical in nature? Now hang in there with me. I realize that worship is done in our physical bodies. But why would a spirit being want something that is only physical and not spiritual also? Got a dollar bill. Here you go, God. And you say, well, that's stupid. Well, of course it's stupid. It's also stupid that he, to think that he needs our money in any form. But he needs the heart. He wants the heart that comes with the dollar bill. It's all about spirit and body, not body by itself. God is spirit, and God must be worshipped in spirit. Verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers... Do you want to call yourself a true worshiper, or do you care? The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? I think we come back to this verse that we looked at a minute ago. These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's the sense in which God is using the word spirit here. Your inner man, your inner person. Are you worshiping God in the inner man? And is that being expressed by the outer man? One author said this, many people worship with the body. This means they consider themselves to have worshiped if they have been in the right place doing the right things at the right time. In Christ's day, the woman thought this meant being either in Jerusalem at the temple or on Mount Gerizim at the Samaritan's temple. In our day, it would refer to people who think they have worshipped God simply because they have occupied a seat in a church on Sunday morning or sung a hymn or lit a candle or crossed themselves or knelt in the aisle. Listen to what David says. Even way back in the Old Testament, David got it. He understood. You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. What does it mean to worship God in the spirit? It means we come in and say, oh God, I'm a sinner. You're the Savior. I need your help. I thank you for your help. I thank you for that dollar you gave me. I'm going to give it to you and say thank you for all of your blessings to me. It's worshiping in the, in the heart. God must be worshiped in our hearts, in our inner man. David really understood this, and it really comes from Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength or your body. Your heart and soul and strength. Worship comes from inside. God must be worshipped in spirit. God must be worshipped in truth. He says this same little phrase twice. Verse 23, he, the Father is seeking true worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Listen to the truth problem with the Pharisees. In vain they worship me. Why? Because they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. If your worship is going to be received by God, it must be based in God's truth, not your own ideas. 
What are the things that we can know that help us to worship? Things we can know from God's truth. First of all, God can only be known through his truth. When you read God's word, are you trying to get to know God as a person? Do you know that God is a person? I didn't say he's physical. I didn't say he's human. I said he's a person. You were created in his image. You are a person. God is knowable as a person through the scriptures. That's the chief thing that should inform your worship. You come uh, here on Sundays or or you're by yourself the rest of the week and, and you look up to heaven and what you know about God informs how you relate to him. One of the reasons you should be in the word of God every day is just to get to know him. How else can you? There is no other way. Unless, of course, you're following the path of many today, which is whatever I think is what I think, and that's good enough. God can only be known through his truth. Secondly, sin can only be known through his truth. David says elsewhere in the Psalms, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. When you come to worship, if there's sin in your life, your worship isn't going any farther than the ceiling. When you talk to God during the week, if there's sin in your life, you know there's sin. You know you need to get rid of it. You're not doing anything about it. There's no true worship. And the way you find out about sin, again, is by reading the word. It's painful to have God poke your heart and say, that's a sin, buddy. But when you know it, you can confess it. You can get yourself right with him, and then you can offer true worship. Righteousness can only be known through his truth. We're going to talk in a minute about the part that your daily righteousness plays in worship. But how can you know to live for God if you don't know his truth? You can plead ignorance. You can can turn your U-turn in the middle of the street and say, well, I didn't know if that was legal or not. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't, depending on how the street's marked. You can plead ignorance, that guy is still going to give you a ticket. Because ignorance is no excuse. Neither is ignorance of this. It's there for us. Prayer can only be offered properly according to God's truth. One of the ways to get your prayers answered is to pray godly prayers. fact, Maybe I should say the only way to get your prayers answered is to pray godly prayers. And the more you know of God's truth, the better you're able to pray. Look at Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ, the word of Christ, the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The concept of teaching and worship and praise, it's all mixed up together, but it's all the result of this dwelling in you richly. We went to Cold Stone Ice Cream last night, and Cold Stone Ice Cream dwells in you richly. (laughs) I got the smallest one, and about halfway through, I had to force myself to eat the rest of it. Yes, even the Rev gets full once in a while. And that stuff is it's good, but it's rich. And it's like, oh, wow, what a load. It just sort of overtakes. It's, it's in your stomach, but it feels like it overtakes your body. When I, whenever I see the word rich, I think of something like that. It's just so great and so overpowering. He says the word of God needs to just settle down inside of you and just permeate your being. And if that happens, the natural result, you won't even have to work at it, will be worship. It'll happen. When I stand up here and say, does anybody have a praise? What's God been doing in your life this week? Immediately you'll think of something, not because you're trying, but because you're just living with the Lord and living in his word. You think, wow, yeah, God did this, God did that, God did the other. Because you know God, you know you, you know his word. It just comes up. That's worship in spirit and in truth. What, What should be our worship practices Let me suggest two arenas for worship. One is personal worship, then I'm going to talk about corporate or gathered worship. Because I hope you understand that worship is not just this one hour on Sunday morning. Worship is is, is a lifestyle. Personal worship starts with an obedient Christian life. 
when you do what God says, you are worshiping him by virtue of the fact that you're saying, you are God, I am your human child, I am your subject, I will follow what you say because you know best and, and you are God and you have the right to define my life. That is worship that comes out of your life, the worship of an obedient life. Where does that start? That starts with you putting your faith in Christ as your Savior. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not a true worshiper. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to help you become a true worshiper. If you never accepted Christ as your Savior, you should not take this today because God says you should not, but also because it's not worship. It's like what, what God said to the Israelites about their worship in the Old Testament. It's an abomination. It's a stink to his nose instead of a sweet aroma. But praise God, you can believe in Christ right where you're sitting. You can say, I am a sinner. Jesus is the Savior. I acknowledge my sin that I can't save myself. I put my faith in Christ. Maybe you've come from a church that has failed to teach you that at some time you must personally put your faith in Christ. It's not enough to know that he died on the cross. You need to say, I need Jesus and I, I receive him. I acknowledge him as my savior. That is the first act of obedience, of worship. The second act, the part of that obedient life also, by the way, is, is baptism. God commands us to be baptized. And then the, the second part of personal worship would be a prayerful dependence on God. Talking to God every day, giving him all your concerns, asking him for everything you need. I've, heard, I've read a fair number of books and heard a fair number of teachers try to say that it's not worship when you're asking God for something. I disagree. When you're going to God saying, God, you're the only one that can help me with this. You are the only one with enough resources to take care of this. You're worshiping God. You're saying, God, you are the source, not me, not somebody else. I'm coming to you for help. And that is expressed through your prayer life. Thirdly, a personal habit of praise. Are you in the habit of praising God when something goes good? A lot of us are in the habit of looking up to heaven and saying, God, I need some help when something goes bad. But when the light turns green, when, you're, when your boss pats you on the back, when he gives you a raise, when, when, when you get a new job, when you graduate school, when, when your husband compliments your new dress, whatever it is, are you in the habit of saying, thank you, God? Just a habit of praise all the time, praising God. One of, the, one of the great blessings about last week and about Raul, uh, who is my new son-in-law, is that he is a deeply spiritual man. He's only known the Lord maybe five years, but he just, he just loves the Lord. And uh, he said, he called me up, uh, oh, maybe a month ago, and he said, I, uh, you know, I was reading in the scripture where Abraham sent his servant to go get a wife for Isaac, and he said, go over to this, this far country where I used to live and go to my family, and God is gonna lead you to a woman for my son to marry. Now you can imagine if you're a servant about to travel several hundred miles on foot or on camel, and you're gonna walk up to somebody and say, give me one of your daughters for my master's son to marry. Okay, I mean, he's a human being, so get your mind around that. So he takes this big journey, and he gets over there, and he, he's, he does kind of like what Jesus does at the well. He's thirsty, and he sits down at the well, and a woman comes out, and uh, they get to talking, and she says, I'll give you water for you and your camels, and, and she's real kind to him, and he says, what's your name, and who's your daddy? And he finds out that she's of the right family, and he says, praise God, I have been sent here to find a wife. And he gives her some gold, uh, some gold jewelry as a sort of a down payment, if you will, of the promise. And, and she takes him home and he says to, uh, says to dad, hey, here's the story and I'm looking for this wife for, for Isaac and so on. And he goes, great, take her. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens. And you know what that servant did after the initial time when God brought He's, he, he found this woman, and she, she's kind of, apparently she's going along with this. You know what he did? It says he worshiped God. 
Now, in that day, it probably means he got down on his knees and, and, and uttered prayer to God and said, Wow, thanks, God. I, you know I didn't think this was going to work out. And here I am, and there she is, and she's beautiful, and they're all going along, and he worshiped God. My son-in-law read that passage of Scripture a couple of months or so ago, and he said, I should worship God for giving me a wife. He says, I want to sing at the wedding and sing God of Wonders and tell people that God has provided a wife for me. That's a heart of worship. That's the kind of heart God wants us to have, not just on Sunday morning, but all the time, recognizing what God has done in our lives. A heart of worship. Do you have a personal habit of praise? And then, not only is there personal worship, but there's corporate worship. Our worship as the body of Christ when we gather. Uh, I've studied the scripture a little bit, and it's a little hard for me to tell you why does God bless this gathering of the body in such a special way? Why is it unique when we come here and sing songs and pray prayer and teach the scripture? And the best answer I can come up with is God said we should get together. And when we do, God shows up in a unique way that he's not always with us when we're apart. And, and he, he seems to bless this because he wants us to get together and do his ministry. And so this is an important part of worship. I don't want to diminish it at all by saying your, your personal worship is critically important 24-7. But this is also important. It's not one or the other, it's both. Don't, don't tell me you're going to go on Sunday up to the mountains and worship God because I'm going to say you're wrong. Be here on Sunday, then go up there afternoon and worship him some more. And I'm not saying that because I'm the preacher and I get my paycheck here. I'm saying it because God has promised to bless the body of Christ in this age and he's given us gifts whereby we minister to one another and so as we conduct the body of Christ, as we conduct church, God is worshipped. Corporate obedience to God's word is the beginning of our worship. If we're not living in obedience to God as a church, as a group, we don't have any basis upon which to worship him. Now I understand that not every single person who comes in here every week is living in absolute obedience to God. That's not what corporate obedience means. Corporate obedience means as a church, we embrace God's word as God's word. When I stand up to preach, I'm preaching God's word, not my word. We, you take that for granted, but in a lot of other churches, that's not what happens. We must be obedient to God's word as a group. Secondly, we ought to offer corporate prayer to ask for God's help. We ought to offer corporate praise to him as we sing together or as we pray together, whatever it is, we work together. We worship together. We serve together. Now I want to I want to show you what the people on the worship team and the ushers get every week, <clears throat> which gives them a detailed order of service. I purposefully don't put it in the bulletin because I don't want you thinking about what comes next. Because what is the point of worship? To think about who? God. Now, we do the things that we do on purpose. This is today's order of worship, and I have done this purposefully different because I hope when we sing some songs in a minute that you will have a fresh understanding of singing from your heart, and maybe you'll, you'll think about this week and all the good things God did for you, and as you sing songs of praise to him, it'll be more meaningful to you, and I hope that'll set a new tone for how you worship when you come every week. Um, I've heard many people say, in fact, I read something just recently that said, during the prelude time, everybody should be quiet and they should be thinking about God. The word prelude, of course, means before, and that's when Marianne usually is over here playing the piano in some joyful way that I love so much. I think you should just be talking to each other and catching up on what's been going on in each other's life because caring for one another is worship. Worship is not just when you sing or just when you pray. It's everything you do if you're doing it in God's way. And he says we're supposed to care for one another. In fact, I'm going to go way out on a limb and say if you're coming to church and not caring for anybody else that's here, 
part of your worship is deficit. It's deficient. We sing a few songs, kind of get your attention. Sometimes we just sing a hymn. And, and I hope what would be happening during that time is you're starting to get a hold of your mind. You know, the scripture talks about taking every thought captive. I understand that your mind's all over the place, but this, this first song or this first group of songs is to say, wait, hey, I'm in church. Hey, I'm here with God's people. Hey, I'm, I'm here to talk to God. I'm here to listen to God. And you start to get your mind together. And, and then Chuck comes and reads a passage of scripture to say, hey, here's, here's kind of an area where we're going to be talking today, or here's something great about God to think about. And when he reads that scripture, you should be thinking, yeah, yeah, there's something great there. And then when he prays, he should be leading us in prayer. Do you know what that means? That means while he prays, you're thinking, oh, he just said, thank you, God. Yeah, I'm, I'm praying with you, Chuck. That's what should be happening. When I pray later on, we should be praying together. I lead in prayer. We don't all pray at once, but in a way we do all pray. I, I verbalize it, and we all pray together. We greet one another, again, to love one another. We say welcome. Sometimes we acknowledge some things that are happening in the body. Today, I'm preaching God's word. The worship happens... When we go out the door living for God, the worship is not just listening. Then we sing some songs, and, and sometimes we sing hymns, sometimes we sing new songs, and, and we, all of it is about God and praising God and relating to God. Today we're going to have the Lord's Supper, and again, if you know Christ as your Savior, and if you're right with Him, you are welcome to partake of this because we do it to remember Jesus. We don't do it just as a physical thing. We'll pray together. We'll give. Giving is an act of worship. And that, in fact, should be the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about giving, not the need of the church or the need of the mission field. It should be the thought of, wow, look at the house I live in. Look at the car that I drive and the clothes that I'm wearing. God has provided for me. James 1.17 says, Every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness or shadow of turning. Every good thing in your life comes from God. Part of worship is learning to acknowledge all those good things. And so when you give to him, you should be saying, thank you, God, thank you. And then the announcements. One of my pet peeves is some pastors who say, we're going to put the announcements right up front in church and get them out of the way. As though they don't matter. And I think, what a short-sighted view. Do you know what the announcements are? The announcements are the call to further worship. Because sometimes... We'll say, hey, there's a choir starting this week and you can come and sing and praise God and, and maybe be involved in an outreach around Easter time. That is a call to worship through service. Sometimes we'll say we're going to take a special offering. Today, after church, as you leave, there's going to be, you see it on the bottom there, there's going to be a special offering for our benevolent fund. We help our own people in need. The announcements make you aware of opportunities to serve. They are calls to worship. They say, we're going to, have, going to have coffee in the welcome room. We're going to have a dinner downstairs. There is a call to come and minister to your brothers and sisters. They are every bit as spiritual as teaching the word of God because it's all about us as the body of Christ worshiping him corporately. We're going to sing the little song we call the doxology. That's, a, that's from Greek and it means the glory song. And it's that little song, Praise God from Whom All Blessings Flow. And many of us grew up singing that regularly. And we sing that usually at the end of our communion service. The words will be on the screen for you so you know them. And it's kind of a classic. For those of you that are new in church, it's kind of a classic worship song. Very short, but it gets to the point. It sort of wraps everything together. And we, we begin the service singing praise to God, and we end the service singing praise to God. our corporate worship. After the wedding, after the wedding ceremony, my son-in-law Raul said to Sue, when dad was preaching, I was trying to listen, but I couldn't stop looking at Stephanie because she was so beautiful. And I'd have to agree, she cleaned up real good. In fact, I'd say I've never seen her look so beautiful. Could I suggest to you, friends, if you really get to know God, he will be so beautiful to you that worship will be just as natural as a groom staring at his bride. 
It won't be something. The work you need to give is in getting to know God. And when that happens, you'll just, you'll just want to come to church and sing his praise and, and share the testimony of what God's done. You'll, 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 wanna, you'll, you'll be like Jeff and me. About two or three times a week, we've got to call each other up and say, hey, you know what just happened? And, and that's worship. That's, that's me saying something great happened. And he comes to me, yeah, something great happened, you know. And, and, uh, and I call my wife up at work and get her call me back sometime. And, and then I'll say, hey. Something great. Worship is just natural. Stuff is happening because you're trying to know God. Worship in spirit and in truth. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of our worship. You are so great. Strengthen our worship today. Purify our worship today. As we sing these songs, as we offer our prayers, as we receive the Lord's Supper, as we give our offering, uh, as we fellowship and encourage one another, may we be mindful that we are, we are honoring you for all that you've done for us. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's word will give you hope for life.